0: No matter what your race, culture, or nationality, God is restoring the destiny of your city and your nation. He is doing this with His kids, not independently of them. Like the conductor of a symphony orchestra, He's producing a restoration soundtrack throughout the nations of the earth with many instruments simultaneously harmonizing under His supernatural direction. As the age of Renaissance progresses, each nation, like the different sections of an orchestra, will contribute its own sound. One nation will be like the percussion section, one like the string section, one like the woodwind section, and so forth. Not only that, but as each of us allows God to bring restoration through our individual lives, we will discover our ability to contribute our own unique sound to the whole just as individual musicians come together to play in the various sections that make up the whole symphony. God is the master conductor, and no matter how torn and tattered your life or hopes, He is looking for reasons and even excuses to make your personal life a beautiful work of art. As your life, your city, and your nation begin to carry His glory, the awe of it all is going to fill the earth. The years leading up to 2050 will be unprecedented in the advancement of God's majestic plan of restoration. To the degree that we understand what he's doing and cooperate with it, we will accelerate this advancement. God is not motivated or driven by earthly timeframes. He's extremely patient with the fulfillment of his masterpiece plan because he's all about making it reflect maximum glory. Because of this, it's difficult for us to put exact timing and dates to specific areas of breakthrough in culture. As sons and daughters of God arise and express in a multitude of ways His correct narrative, His character, His beauty, His power, and His love, every temporal dynamic and time consideration will yield. Something that would normally take 10 or even 100 years to accomplish might just take a day. Meanwhile, certain aspects of the era of Renaissance could take one full generation or ten generations to accomplish. Eschatology-wise, we know that we are currently in the defining third day of the last days, but this gives us hundreds of years of leeway. I believe that if we fully embrace God's plan, we can greatly hasten the fulfillment of His kingdom objectives on earth. Even as we seek to hasten matters, it is important for us to be reminded of the amazing patience of our God. This particular quality of God is one that we are grossly out of touch with, but its significance cannot be overemphasized. Because the church often overlooks this aspect of his character, many Christians have predicted that the United States, and even the whole world, is about to be consumed by God's holy, fiery judgments due to its sin. Yet with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. This is out of 2 Peter 3.8. The extent of his patience is beyond anything we can comprehend in our mental grid, sometimes to our chagrin, and let me further explain. Hopefully all of us would agree that the practices like polygamy and slavery are totally outside the clearly expressed will of God. No minister today who would preach either of these or be in support of these practices or participate in them in any way would be considered anything other than a heretic or a cult leader. However, we see that God's best friends in the Old Testament, Abraham and David, were polygamists and seemingly slaveholders as well. You know, when I realized this fact, it, it bothered me greatly for some time and I needed to go to the Lord about it. And so I said, Lord, you're already talking with Abraham You're already having a conversation. You showed him the the stars of the sky and the sand of the shore. You told him that his descendants would be as numberless as they are. This is out of Genesis 22. Since you're already talking to him, why didn't you just add, hey, by the way, Abe, one wife only. Wouldn't that have been wise, Lord? There might've even been peace in the Middle East now if you had done that. So why didn't you just tell him you know, his clear response to me was this, because I was not working on that then, I inquired similarly about David. I didn't understand how or why God wouldn't just tell someone who loved to behold the beauty of the Lord, you know, out of Psalm 27, and who wanted to ascend his holy mountain out of Psalm 24, why wouldn't he just tell them that polygamy and slavery were not acceptable? Again, the Lord said, I wasn't working on that then. The Lord went on to show me that He is a very patient God, and that He knows what kind of instruction is age-appropriate for society. I begin to understand why the God of the Old Testament seemed to be so different from Father God who is revealed to us in the New Testament, specifically through the person of Jesus. God is able to look at society itself and know what spiritual lessons are appropriate to teach people at any given time. The earlier accounts from the Old Testament present us with the God who understands he is dealing essentially with the equivalent of a two-year-old society. And any parent who has raised kids knows that you don't sit down with your two-year-old to talk with him or her about the deep things of life. You don't discuss profound heart issues or explain all the great options in life that will be coming to him or her. Instead, with a two-year-old, you have to hand out a lot of no's. No, you may not have some more ice cream. No, you may not stay up any later. No, you may not spit the food on the floor. No, you may not jump off of that chair. As well as many don'ts. Don't pull your sister's hair. Don't turn into the street in front of cars if you're a little older or if you're younger. Don't put your finger into the electric socket. Don't stay... Don't play with matches, and so on and so forth. When a child is two years old, the focus is on keeping him or her alive today so that you can have those deeper conversations and relational connections in the future. So early on, God was just trying to keep society alive. Thus, all his instructions and commandments were for that purpose, similar to how parents of young children might come across to others as very negative and rules obsessed because they constantly need to correct and protect their children, so our perception of God from the Old Testament is often skewed because we do not properly understand that He was dealing with very childish people, spiritually speaking. None of the people who lived under the Old Covenant had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, nor did they have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them, doing the work of conviction and instruction. These things weren't available in the Old Testament. It really is hard to imagine such a world with no internal teacher. By New Testament days, God's best friends from the Old Testament would not even have qualified for church leadership. Paul the Apostle laid out the new standard. Any man who wanted to be a church leader needed to be, quote, the husband of one wife, Titus 1, verse 6. Interestingly, no new written set of laws had been given in between the two testaments. Yet somehow much of society was aware that having only one wife was now the standard. By this point, society had matured to about the level of a 12-year-old. However, when Paul was still saying things like, if you are a slave, serve your master well, and if you own slaves, treat them right, that's out of Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, If Paul were to show up preaching that stuff now, he would be run out of town by any of the 30,000 plus Christian denominations that currently exist. Furthermore, he would not be received by our society. Society itself has grown up enough in an understanding of God's knowledge that polygamy and slavery have been almost completely rejected, a fact that I will talk more about shortly. Knowledge of God's ways is progressively filling the earth even though many people don't realize that this knowledge comes from him. It is also quite apparent that sexism was still quite prevalent in New Testament times, despite the gender-inclusive example that Jesus himself set. Mary and Martha frequently interacted with him and were really his closest friends. Yet when the gospel recorders wrote about Jesus and his ministry, they were more likely to mention the male figures by name, while the women were referred to in general terms often. They would write about what happened to Zacchaeus and Nicodemus, then talk about a woman who had a flow of blood, you know, Matthew 9, 20, or a woman of Samaria, John 4, 7. They were still figuring out that Jesus viewed women as equal to men in value and call. Even today, sexism is more likely to occur in the church than in our society. This is an example of how the knowledge of God can advance in the general culture beyond the point where it has advanced in the church. The point of all this is to illustrate the incredible patience of God. From Genesis 2.24, the standard was laid out, you know, that a man shall leave his father and a mother and is joined to his one wife, and they will become one flesh. God didn't include this standard in the Ten Commandments but waited for man to connect the dots, so to speak, and figure it out. Neither was slavery or sexism or racism banned in the Ten Commandments. God instructed on these matters in other ways in the Scriptures, and then He had the patience to allow us to figure out what He did not specifically command. Because of the progressive growing up of society, it is now a reality that the average citizen on earth has an understanding of certain matters of right and wrong that even God's closest friends had not yet figured out in the early days of the Old Testament. Therefore, as we progress in these Renaissance days, it becomes imperative that we learn to synchronize what we think God should be working on in society with what He is actually working on. We can be overzealous about matters that He has not yet placed on His do-next list, making us out of sync with the unfolding of his grace in the world. I believe that much of the church in America is is often in an overzealous place. For instance, many believers are sure that God is barely restraining himself from commanding fire and brimstone to fall on the gay community because we wrongly perceive that such judgment is his next priority. I believe that he is much more concerned about the lack of unconditional love among his children than whether society gets it clear that, quote, being gay is wrong. The Pharisees of Jesus' day had the same clash with Jesus and his priorities for their time in history. They hated the fact that he was a friend of sinners. You'll see that in Luke chapter 7. He wasn't just a minister to sinners. He was a friend of sinners. You don't become a friend of sinners by continually telling them about their sin. Jesus' lack of denunciation of their wrongdoing is what we can imagine really bothered the Pharisees. They told Jesus, in effect, it looks like you are condoning sin. You hang out with alcoholics, pimps, prostitutes, and other sinners. How are they going to know that what they are doing is wrong if you keep just hanging out with them and making them feel comfortable? It seems that at one point, the Pharisees set up a woman to be caught in the act of adultery and brought her to Jesus so that he would have to make a clear declaration about his stance on sin. See, Pharisees, then and now, always want to know your stance on sin. They laid a trap for this friend of sinners, thinking that he would have no choice but to say, Yes, she is guilty under the law. Let her be stoned. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees is of course, grossly apparent in the fact that the man who had committed adultery with the woman was not also brought into the scene for condemnation. Perhaps he had been in on the setup that Jesus refused to fall for. Jesus refused to be pressured regarding his stance on sin because he realized that a woman's heart was at risk and she was being publicly shamed. So he said, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. It's John chapter 8, verse 7. Then he began writing something on the ground. You know, perhaps he was writing the various sins of those who had gathered to exert their holiness zeal. Whatever, one by one, they scattered until no one was left. And Jesus said, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she answered and said, no one, Lord. Jesus then followed up with a statement that was shocking, considering he was the God who actually wrote the Ten Commandments the Pharisees had wanted to stone her with. He said, Neither do I condemn you. And then go and sin no more. Wow, do you see the patience of God in this account? He never condoned adultery. However, the most important thing was not that this woman understand that adultery was wrong. It was more important for her to see a religious leader driving off all her malicious accusers. And then only after those accusers had been driven away to have him instruct her that what she had been doing was not God's will for her. Jesus first ministered unconditional love to the woman by saying, neither do I condemn you. When he finally mentioned her sin, it wasn't in a speech or a lecture Rather, it was in the context of an empowering statement about what she was capable of doing now that she had encountered the unconditional love of God through the one who was God in the flesh. God knows that a high level of love demonstrated by the children of his household must come before there can be any focus on sinful behavior in society. Pointing our finger at the adulterer or the homosexual or the abortionist is always easier for us than growing in unconditional love. That is why the church keeps opting for the former. Not only is it easier, but it also makes us feel better about ourselves and our own superior behavior. Fortunately for us, God has patience with the church as well, just as He has with the world. The fact that he demonstrates patience doesn't mean he overlooks sin, only that he addresses matters in the appropriate order for the stage that society, the church, or an individual has attained to. Isn't this the way God deals with us personally? He doesn't take on all our issues at one time. Rather, he patiently deals with one matter at a time. Once we successfully resolve a certain matter that God has been working on with us, sometimes for many years... We almost expect him to suddenly zap us to heaven, similarly to the way he translated Enoch. But to our surprise, he then says, okay, let's move on to the next thing. Enoch apparently had issues for about 365 years before he was taken. You can see Genesis 5, 23 and 24 for that. So we might have some issues to work through for a while as well. This is why sin consciousness is never the goal and why there is a danger when we refer only to fiery evangelists of old who carry that priority. Our goal must be sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, because He is amazing at knowing what is fitting for each stage of spiritual growth, whether of individuals, nations, or the whole world. For example, to me, it's plain to see that a significant signal from heaven was received by society some years ago, when all of a sudden everyone seemed to know that the sex slave trade was just not acceptable for society at our stage of development. Now it seems everyone is aware of the issue, and many people are doing something to remove this cancer of society. And this is whether they're believers or not. Not only is the church on it, Hollywood is on it, star athletes are on it, the government's on it, everybody seems to be on it in some way. The collective consciousness of society has been triggered by this specific revelation of the knowledge of God, and it is time to deal with this horrible reality. Additionally, at some point, the connection between pornography and the sex slave trade will be conclusively established, and then society will start rejecting pornography on a wide scale as well. Evils such as sex slavery and pornography have always been wrong, But in his patience, God has let us connect the dots that he laid out in the scriptures and that he has been communicating to society over generations. Note that apart from any new commandment, the Apostle Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to connect the dots of the Old Testament and to communicate to the church. You know what? Polygamy has never been okay. More recently, the church and society have had similar moments in regard to the issues of slavery, sexism, and racism. And they've rejected these sins, not because someone clearly called them sins, but because the love of God continued to be poured out on the world and his ways began to be absorbed even by those who still rejected him. In this Renaissance era, we are all going to grow significantly in our knowledge of the nuances of God's character and of the ways in which he thinks and reasons. Every one of us has a role in properly revealing the beauty of who he is and how he is. But first, we have to begin by really seeing him ourselves. There is no greater pursuit than to see and know our God in a more intimate way. I encourage you to discover him and champion him. Be convinced of its hope-filled storyline and run to find your place in it. Heaven on earth awaits your participation. God thought of you in eternity and caused you to be born on earth in this generation for such a time as this. Again, no matter what your color, age, gender, level of education, amount of wealth or status in life, God has given you something with which you can shine in a reflection of his glory. Moses had a stick, David had a stone. You've been given something specific that can be used to bring fame to God on earth and to display the truth about how good he is. There is some nuanced knowledge of who he is and how he is that you were designed to carry an Isaiah 60 aspect of God's glory that he's given you to arise and shine with. May you discover that glory and rise like the noonday sun. This podcast was made available by contributions from listeners like you. To donate, go online to restore7.org. Thank you.